Chatting. Tune in. Lock Talk Radio. Michigan's 10th District. My website is nks2008.com. You're listening to Restore the Republic Radio. It is 8.01 p.m. Eastern Time here where I live in Michigan. And um, today I'm going to be reading more of Senator Mike Gravel's book about the mainstream media, The Kingmakers. Uh, once again, for those of you who um, have issues with Senator Mike Gravel formerly being a Democrat, um, there is no socialism in this book. This book strictly exposes the uh, mainstream media, and it's a very good read. Um, we actually, I've been reading little bits of this over time, and uh, we are now on to Chapter 5, The Likeability Election. This chapter specifically talks about the subject matter of how the mainstream media manipulates the political elections. <clears throat> now, here's a quote. You're likable enough, Hillary, no doubt about it. Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton, 2008 New Hampshire Democratic Debate. Leading candidates. The media echo chamber not only jeopardizes our security by hyping phony threats, it also strangles our democracy by hyping favorite candidates. The media has come to play a bigger role in choosing the president than the political parties or even America's voters. Before most Americans start paying attention to the presidential race, the echo chamber has already promoted certain candidates over others and given them tremendous advantages that prove extremely difficult for other candidates to overcome. In the early part of the presidential race, today's candidates focus more on garnering favorable media exposure than on winning over voters. With exposure comes fundraising because campaign contributors want to support a potential winner. The media then reports the money raised by candidates as a sign of how well their campaigns are doing and rewards the top money getters with the labels front runner, top contender, or top tier candidate. Even before the mass majority of voters start paying attention to the race, the media has pronounced the leading candidates which such media validation, I'm sorry, with such media validation, candidates can collect more money, which generates even more media coverage. News coverage also means better name recognition, which is critical at the start of the race when Americans are unfamiliar with most of the candidates. Pollsters call potential voters to ask which candidate, candidate they support from a list of names. Respondents will only choose candidates whose names they recognize. As a result, the candidate with the most media exposure gets the highest poll numbers. High poll numbers bring in even more money and generate more media coverage. While the leading candidates ride the succeeding waves of media coverage, fundraising, and polls, the rest of the field struggles to keep afloat. John McCain. The echo chamber not only builds up candidates by lavishing attention to their fundraising success, it can also destroy important contenders by focusing on their lack of money. In the summer of 2007, John McCain revealed that his fundraising was lower than expected and his campaign had to lay off staff members. Immediately, the echo chamber speculated that McCain would drop out, and of course his poll numbers plummeted. However, McCain resisted the pressure, and five months later, he won the New Hampshire primary. Suddenly, the echo chamber, which months before had pronounced McCain DOA, began calling him the candidate to beat. Journalists respond to criticisms of how they choose the top candidates by saying that they get their information from pollsters, party insiders, and experts but the opinions of all those people are based on what they see in the media. Furthermore, journalists can always find someone to give them a quote supporting whatever storyline they are pushing. The New Cult of Personality America's fascination with celebrities has had a huge impact on political reporting. Today's news organizations know that running stories on tax reform or Medicare will bore readers and viewers. 
Since they are just as determined to increase their profits as any other business, their political reporting focuses on two things that interest consumers, personality and celebrity. Stories about candidates tend to focus on their personal narratives or styles rather than experience or positions. Candidates know this and pay media consultants millions of dollars to help them to develop an appealing style. Journalists justify this focus on personality by claiming voters are swayed by the candidate's ability to connect or their likability. But voters are swayed by these superficial qualities in large part because they are presented as more important than the issues. It's also much easier on viewers to choose a candidate based on looks and personality rather than actually pondering the issues. Thus, the echo chamber transforms a presidential race into an American Idol contest because that's what the viewers want. The media and the public are mutually responsible for maintaining the new cult of personality. Polls consistently find that most Americans are unsatisfied with the quality of American news coverage. A 2000 poll found that 62% agreed with the statement, quote, political campaigns today seem more like theater or entertainment than like something to be taken seriously, end quote. But that's what the consumers want. And in a journalism world dominated by profit-minded media conglomerates, ratings become before, come before all considerations, including journalistic integrity. Everyone collaborates with keeping the public in an infantile state. People don't want to be challenged, and the media keeps giving the people what they want. Bread and circuses, just like the last days of the Roman Empire. Time Magazine. To see how much political news has morphed into celebrity news, look at Time Magazine. Time has long been one of the most powerful publications in America. Even though its influence has declined in the past 20 years, the magazine's cover is still a huge prize for any presidential contender. Although most Americans may not buy the issue, millions see it on newsstands. Political news shows also take their cue from time and devote attention to the candidate throughout the week. Of course, the widespread TV exposure generates more name recognition and more campaign contributions. More than a year away from the primaries, Time put Barack Obama on the cover of an October 2006 issue along with the headline, Why Barack Obama Could Be the Next President. Obama got another Time cover a year later along with a puff piece interview. Hillary Clinton snagged two Time covers and Mitt Romney got one. Why didn't Time deem any other presidential candidates worthy of a cover before the primaries? No one else had a sexy story. Obama and Clinton and Romney would be the first. The first African-American woman, I'm sorry, sorry, the first African-American woman or Mormon president. Of course, that is exciting and historic. Breaking the white, mostly Protestant, male stranglehold in the presidency would be a remarkable advance for equality in America. But the echo chamber's focus on certain personalities and life stories over qualifications and issues transforms the presidential race into a con contest over what the media calls likability. The likability factor. Self-help guru Tim Sanders popularized the word likability in a 2005 book, The Likability Factor. Here are Sanders' measures of likability. One, smile often. Two, pleasant tone of voice. Three, positive, optimistic attitude. Four, approachable. Five, good listener. Six, build other people's self-confidence and make them feel good about themselves. Very helpful. Seven, skilled at being sensitive. Eight, understanding of other people's thoughts, feelings, and experiences. Nine, connect with others' interests such as hobbies, hometowns, and affiliations. This sounds more like Oprah Winfrey or a really good kindergarten teacher, not a commander-in-chief. But the media seized on likability as a key factor in the presidential race because it justifies their hyper-focus on personality. The leading candidates also try to conform to the likability formula by avoiding strong positions that might challenge voters. They want voters to believe that they understand everyone's thoughts, feelings, and experiences, that everyone is special and everyone's opinion is valid. No wonder our national political discussion is so vapid. The talking heads reinforce this absence of real issues in the national debate by focusing on who is most likable. Barack Obama is a perfect example. He's a very interesting guy behind closed doors, but he never shows it on the campaign trail. A typical Obama speech avoids anything that might alienate anyone and offers lots of happy talk about hope and change. This is not entirely Obama's fault. He knows strong positions will antagonize some people and make him less, quote, likable. 
He knows people tend to focus on style over words, and an effective speech today makes people feel good about themselves rather than challenges them to, you know, challenging them to make think for themselves. Obama has everything he needs to be a successful politician today, likability and charisma. Why would he want to spoil that advantage by actually discussing the issues in depth or displaying some genuine but, but potentially unlikable personality traits? Obama got burned the, the one time he broke out of his likable persona. Ironically, it happened when the likability issue was raised during a presidential debate days before the New Hampshire primary. Hillary Clinton was asked what she would, what she would quote, say to the voters of New Hampshire who seem, I'm sorry, who see a resume and like it but are hesitating on the likability issue where they seem to like Barack Obama more. Clinton gave a very likable response, quote, well, that hurts my feelings, laughter. But I'll try to go on, laughter. He's very likable. I agree with that. And I don't think I'm that bad, end quote. In a moment of uncharacteristic candor, Obama disdainfully chimed in, quote, you're likable enough, Hillary, end quote, making his true feelings quite plain. After Obama lost the New Hampshire vote, the echo chamber cited this moment when Obama showed his disdain for Hillary as a turning point. It seems voters did not like Obama's, quote, unlikable, quote, flash of genuine feeling. Such a touchy-feely considerations might be relevant if we were electing America's next top model, but have no place in choosing the next commander-in-chief. Barack's no-show votes. Barack Obama is also a great example of how the echo chamber becomes invested in the storyline it created for a candidate and refuses to report anything that deviates from it. By far the most compelling and politically talented politician in the current American political scene, Obama also has great backstory. Growing up the son of a biracial couple and becoming an extremely successful adult without much support from his father. Everyone should admire his meteoric rise to the apex of American politics, along with his brave stand against the Iraq War in the face of warmongering from both parties and the national media. However, Obama has flaws from the media that, that, I'm sorry. However, Obama has flaws the media conveniently underreported during their buildup of his candidacy for president. While a state senator, he refused to vote on the issue of abortion when it came up five times. He refused to stand up for the, quote, the right to choose, which he publicly supports and instead voted present, essentially a non-vote. Why didn't he vote according to his vaunted principles? It was politically expedient not to register a vote on abortion. Obama also ducked a recent Senate vote to label the Iranian Revolutionary Guard as a, quote, terrorist organization, and basically give George Bush a green light to start a war with Iran. While all the other senators running for president voted on the resolution, Obama was a no-show. Shouldn't Obama's refusal to take a stand on politically tough votes have sparked widespread debate in the media about his commitment to principle over politics? Isn't this an important question for voters trying to decide whether he will make a good president? The media willfully ignored these crucial questions, which deviated from their preferred storyline. Obamagate. Obama also had a financial scandal the national press largely ignored. In November 2006, the Chicago Tribune reputed, reported that Obama purchased a $1.65 million Georgian revival home on Chicago's south side in 2005 at $300,000 less than the asking price. On the very same day, Antoine Tony Rezko, an Obama fundraiser and slumlord, bought an empty lot adjacent to Obama's new home at the asking price from the same owner. Dresco then sold a $1,500 square foot slice of it to Obama for $104,000, a fair sum in that market. Dresco was later indicted for extortion and influence peddling in the Illinois state legislature. Did Dresco orchestrate this same purchase of the lot at full price so that the seller would give Obama a break on the adjacent house? Did Resco do this so he could call in a favor from the rising Illinois political star? Obama simply denied any ar arrangement with Resco, claiming that he got such a good deal because the house was being unloaded in a, quote, fire sale. One might wonder why the seller sold to Obama at the fire sale price, but Resco at the market rate. But Obama's fire sale explanation was sufficient for the national media. Whatever discussion it did generate was quickly drowned out in the echo chamber because the media did not want anything to, compl to complicate the feel-good story of the charismatic, resi resilient up-and-comer. Obama is not corrupt, but his judgment in this instance can be questioned. 
By refusing to ask legitimate questions, the media never forced Obama to fully explain his thinking to the American public. Quote, the biggest fairy tale I've ever seen. On the day before 2008 New Hampshire primary, Bill Clinton voiced his frustration with the media for giving Obama a free ride. The former president was upset the media echoed Obama's claim to be the anti-war candidate, even though he repeatedly voted to fund the war. Clinton fumed about the media trumpeting Obama's superior judgment and how he had been against the war every year. And then Clinton says, give me a break. This whole thing is the biggest fairy tale I've ever seen. Clinton was right. Obama may have opposed the war initially, but he consistently voted to fund the war until a majority of Democratic voters began to oppose funding. Hardly a profile in courage. The media gave him a free pass for those votes, among others. Although the media covered Bill Clinton's outburst and gave particular attention to his fairy tale line, another line in his speech was much more interesting. Quote, just because of the sanitizing coverage that's in the media doesn't mean the facts aren't out there, end quote. Clinton did not elaborate on those facts. But during the debate before the South Carolina primary, Hillary brought up Obama's present votes on abortion and his legal work representing his contributor, Resco, in his slum-landlord slum business in inner-city Chicago. The Chicago Tribune noted that prior to, the moment only, I'm sorry, prior to that moment, only the Chicago newspapers gave the Resco story any play. Fortunately for Obama, most of the national media continued to ignore the story, much to Hillary's chagrin. The problem with the media turning a blind eye to certain stories that might impede the rise of a favored candidate is that when those stories eventually come out, and they always do, they might be even more damaging than if they were dealt with at the start of a campaign. In Obama's case, old stories involving Resco and his inflammatory pastor, Jeremiah Wright, suddenly burst into the news late in the primary contest. The resulting media frenzies presented serious obstacles to Obama's ability to sew up the nomination. Chris Dyer laying it down for revolution broadcast. I'm running for Congress in Nevada District 1. If you want freedom, better vote for me, son. A bloated government is losing its clap like Gwen Stefani. I have not got too guns and butter overseas. Believe us, eating macaroni and cheese. These beats are stale and my rhymes are thin. Donating my campaign and I'll never rap again. Now pay attention, because I'll only say it once. I'm down with Ron Paul and I'm down with Carl once. David Isbell. Correct. The track Kelvin Atkinson is Now let's bring down the evil empire. Open up your wallet and donate to Chris Dyer. Peace, 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 peace. Yo, 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 bring that beat back. I want to shout some holler down. Yeah, GOP, what's up, party people? Props to Arden Osborne in the NLA. Daily Paul, down with you. Andy Beamers, Jim Forsyth, all the sneaky hippies in New Hampshire. Las Vegas, meet up. Neo at ronpaulchat.net. Mr. Marie Joss, my girl, girl. Chris Robertson, Andrew Brownson, all my homies at the GOP. I'm Chris Dyer, and I approve this message. Congress prepared a voter to pass the Military Commissions Act to reauthorize the USA Patriot Act, both which have abridged the freedoms we cherish. It is for this very reason we are losing our freedoms. I'm Brian Green, independent candidate for Congress, and I approve this message. In Congress, I'll fight to protect the Constitution and to ensure limited constitutional government. Visit Brian Green, the Freedom Factor, at www.briangreen08.com. Hey, listen up. Join Revolution Broadcasting and Restore the Republic on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern for Keep America Free with Amanda Moore. Amanda's a conservative talk show host with a libertarian twist. She's mad as hell, and she's not going to take it anymore. And neither should you. Join us and help keep America free. That's Wednesday nights, Friday nights, and Saturday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. And let freedom ring. Hey, you, I'm talking to you. Delia Lopez, Republican Congressional Candidate, District 3, Oregon. Delia Lopez will secure our borders. Delia Lopez will fight for a balanced budget and shrink the size of government. Delia Lopez will fight to stop the encroachment of our civil liberties that are being stripped away from us by our acting members in Congress. This November, vote Delia Lopez. DLopezforCongress.com. DLopezforCongress.com. Got something you want to get off your chest? Or something wonderful you want to shout about to the world? Well, send it to me, because I'm Rex Brocky, the host of Rants and Raves with Rex on Revolution Broadcasting. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, or every weekday at least, you can tune in and hear the best and the worst in the news of these very interesting times we live in. 
Rants and Raves with Rex on Revolution Broadcasting. Senator Mike Gravel's book, The Kingmakers. Uh, this book basically exposes issues about the mainstream media. And uh, in specific, the chapters that I'm reading now are talking about the 2008 election. I'm going to finish up what I was reading about Obama. Now, the resulting media frenzies presented serious obstacles to Obama's ability to sew up the nomination in the spring of 2008 and further divided the Democratic Party. This guy just said cocaine again. The story of Obama's cocaine use is a good example of how a candidate can be hurt when rivals revive an underreported story at a crucial moment in a campaign. Obama was smart to, quote, get out in front of the story, end quote, and expose his past drug use before the media did. By revealing it in his 2004 autobiography, Dreams from My Father, a story of race and inheritance, Obama was able to avoid scandal by weaving his drug use into a narrative Sorry about that. Obama was able to avoid scandal by weaving his drug use into a narrative of how he overcame a difficult past. With the notable exception of Fox News, the media repeated that positive spin in the little coverage it got. The story remained dormant throughout the campaign until a month before the Iowa caucus when the Clinton campaign sent an email to supporters and reporters. Quote, it's important for Democrats to understand the strengths and weaknesses of each candidate. Clinton's negatives are well known, Obama's less so. Any shortcomings, inconsistencies, or misstatements in Obama's past will be exploited by Republicans in the fall campaign if he's the nominee. It's best for, the, for Democrats to vet them now, end quote. Actually, it was best for Clinton to vet them in the weeks leading up to Iowa. A day after that email went out, William Shaheen, co-chairman of Ms. Clinton's National and New Hampshire campaigns, raised Obama's drug use in an interview with the Washington Post suggesting that voters should study Obama's background before they vote for him and warning that Republicans would surely exploit the issue in a general election contest. Quote, it'll be, when was the last time did you ever give drugs to anyone? Did you sell them to anyone, Shaheen said. Quote, there are so many openings for Republican dirty tricks, it's hard to overcome, end quote. After reports of Shaheen's comments rattled around the echo chamber, Clinton asked for this resignation, I'm sorry, for his resignation, and he publicly apologized, which kept the story in the headlines for another day. Days later, Clinton's top advisor, Mark Penn, appeared on MSNBC with Obama's top advisor, David Axelrod, and John Edwards' strategist, Joe Trippi, to, to discuss Shaheen's comments. Penn did, did his best to distance himself from Shaheen's scandal-mongering while simultaneously keeping it alive by dropping the word cocaine, saying that the Clinton campaign had not raised the cocaine use. Penn's brazenness appalled even the seasoned polit politicio trippy who couldn't contain his disgust. This guy just said cocaine again. Weeks later, after the Shaheen brouhaha was dying down, Another Clinton supporter, Robert Johnson, the founder of the Black Entertainment Television Network, brought up Obama's drug use and generated more headlines. Days later, he duly apologized. The Likeable Huckabee No candidate has benefited more from the echo chamber's fixation on likability than Mike Huckabee. Journalists love his personal story of losing 100 pounds and his supposedly great sense of humor. 
Newsweek claimed, it's not hard to like Mike Huckabee. And the nation said, he has real charm. Conan O'Brien, Bill Maher, and Jay Leno invited him on their shows to yuck it up. Everyone in the echo chamber fell in love with Huckabee. Why? He believes only Christians get to go to heaven. Quote, if you're with Jesus Christ, we know how it turns out in the final moment. I've read the last chapter in the book, and we do end up winning. End quote. One of his first acts as governor of Arkansas was to block Medicaid from funding, on a, from funding an abortion for a mentally retarded teenager who had been raped by her stepfather. He not only supports a constitutional amendment banning abortion, he also favors religion over science. Quote, science changes with every generation and with the new discoveries, and God doesn't. So I'll stick with God if the two are in conflict. End quote. He even questions evolution. Quote, if anybody wants to believe that they are descendants of a primate, they are certainly welcome to do it, end quote. He refused to back away from his statement that AIDS victims should be quarantined, and he supports flying the Confederate flag over the South Carolina state capitol. This is a media darling? Huckabee has also engaged in borderline corrupt schemes that make Obama's real estate deal with Resco look like the height of propriety. Huckabee paid himself as a consultant to, own, to his own senatorial campaign and set up a, quote, wedding registry at Target and Dillard's department store so the people of Arkansas could buy his wife and him gifts when the Huckabees renewed their marriage vows. If Huckabee fans didn't want to buy him a KitchenAid mixer or Jack LaLanne power juicer, the governor arranged for registry to accept cash. Message from the couple, the registry noted. Target gift cards are welcome. Aside from Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone, the media embraced the likable Huckabee and overlooked facts that would interfere with the love fest. The inevitable Hillary Clinton. While the echo chamber pronounced Obama and Huckabee likable, the Hillary Clinton, um, Hillary Clinton was called inevitable. Her big lead in the polls during the summer of 2007 seemed to support the media's storyline about Hillary's coronation march to the Democratic nomination. The gullible media, however, put too much trust in the polls which favored Clinton because of her unparalleled name recognition. Once Democrats started paying attention to the race in the fall of 2007, Clinton's poll numbers dropped. Democrats began to see that Clinton was closer to George Bush on the issues than they thought. Hillary voted for the Patriot Act and then supported its renewal in 2006, despite revelations that the government was using it to infringe on the very liberties that our founders held sacred. She is a hawk and a consistent supporter of Bush's belligerence toward Iraq and Iran. She even voted for the war in Iraq without bothering to read the 90-page National Intelligence Estimate, which showed that the administration's case for war was weaker than the media was reporting. She then repeatedly authorized billions for the Pentagon to enrich Halliburton in no-bid contracts. When ousting Saddam brought chaos to the streets of Iraq and death to thousands of innocents, she blamed the Iraqis. Quote, the American military has succeeded. It is the Iraqi government which has failed to make the tough decisions that are important for their own people, end quote. A candidate so out of touch with typical Democratic voters could only be labeled inevitable by a gullible, out-of-touch media. John Edwards' haircut scandal. free passes for their misdeeds. It has no problem trashing candidates for absolutely nothing. A perfect example of this is the media frenzy over John Edwards' haircuts. The blog Politicio broke the big news on April 16, 2007, that John Edwards spent $400 on February 20th and another $400 on March 7th at a top Beverly Hills men's stylist, Toranuva Hair Designs. Matt Drudge picked up the story, and a day later, the Los Angeles Times ran a report. Quote, two $400 stylings may cost John Edwards' campaign in or cast, or, yeah, cost John Edwards' campaign in sheer mockery. The AP later joined the sniggering with an article titled "Edwards' Haircuts Cost a Pretty Penny," which opened with a cheap shot. Looking pretty is costing John Edwards' presidential campaign a lot of pennies. End quote. The repeated use of the word "pretty" was a riff on a popular YouTube video of Edwards caught on camera while waiting for a television interview. Edwards primps his hair up and checks, out, checks himself out in a mirror to the tune of the song, I'm So Pretty. According to the AP, SEC records show Edwards also availed himself of $250 in services from a trendy salon and spa in Dubaqua, Iowa, and $225 in services from the Pink Sapphire in Manchester, New Hampshire, which is described on his website as a unique boutique for the mind, body, and face that caters mostly to women. 
Edward's day at the spa fit the media's running storyline. A vain man who pretends to care for the poor, but is really only concerned with his grooming. The AP story, however, buried certain facts until the end of the article. Quote, Pink Sapphire co-owner Ariana Fragnos said, th- said the two payments last month, 150 on the March 7th and $75 on March 20th, were for doing Edward's makeup for television appearances. End quote. The owner also assured the AP, this poor guy, I'm telling you, I promise he's not in here and not in here getting facials and cucumber peels on his eyes or anything, end quote. She said, in other words, Edwards, like all politicians, was just getting makeup for a TV appearance, but the AP buried the fact, that fact at the end of the article. So why would the AP even mention that the Pink Sapphire, quote, mainly caters to women? Why did the media push such trumped-up stories about Edwards despite the facts? Even before the haircut story appeared, the media had embraced a caricature of Edwards as a vain, primping Breck boy. This was the notion behind conservative Rush Limbaugh asking whether Edwards might be our first female president, or New York Times liberal Maureen Dowd labeling Edwards the metrosexual-in-chief. While the echo chamber exoperated Ann Coulter for calling Edwards a faggot, pardon the word, they happily played upon the sentiment behind the slur when they harped on Edwards' $400 haircuts. The Edwards campaign never recovered. Edwards' mistake. John Edwards has all the makings of a strong candidate, like the successful Democratic presidential candidates of the past 40 years. He's a white Southerner who could easily contest southern states in a general election. Even before the haircut scandal, Edwards doomed himself with the media by centering his campaign on poverty, an unglamorous issue that the media has ignored assiduously for 30 years. When has the last time anyone on Meet the Press ever mentioned the word poverty? Edwards' incisive assessment of two Americas, one rich and one poor, was not just an indictment of the rich or an indifferent government. He was also challenging a media that pretends the poor doesn't exist in America. If the media took Edwards' message seriously, they would suddenly have to start covering unsexy stories about the ghetto or rural poverty poverty shows the way they did back in the 1970s. Political talk shows like Hardball would have to hold discussions about impoverished children, a real ratings killer to be sure. Rather than take Edwards' message seriously, it was much easier for the echo chamber to focus on his style and personality and dismiss him as a vain, hypocritical pretty boy. Obama, the new Bobby Kennedy. By January 2008, the same two candidates that the media celebrated and protected from the very beginning of the race were leading in the polls. After Obama won a surprising victory in Iowa, the echo chamber began pronouncing him the inevitable nominee and jumping off the Clinton bandwagon in droves. Suddenly, not only had Hillary lost her sparkle, but Bill Clinton had too. The New York Times described a sluggish Bill Clinton speaking to listless, smallish, and sleepy crowds in New Hampshire. Is this what it would have been like had Elvis been reduced to playing Reno? In the days leading up to the New Hampshire vote, almost all the talking heads in the media parroted the same storyline. Obama was the new Bobby Kennedy, and his victory marked the end of the Clinton era. Hillary's Edmund Muskie moment. Our celebrity-obsessed media loves a gaffe, especially one that reflects the echo chamber storyline. After Clinton's loss in the Iowa primary, the media was primed for a Hillary breakdown akin to Howard Dean's scream in 2004, or Edmund Muskie's tearing up in, 19, tearing up in 1972 after a New Hampshire newspaper att- attacked his wife. In each case, the media transformed an insignificant moment into a major news story that had significant impact in the presidential race. The media got its meltdown when Hillary became misty during a coffee clash with 15 women in New Hampshire. Someone asked Clinton how she held up on the campaign trail. She said, quote, It's not easy. It's not easy, Clinton said, shaking her head, her eyes becoming a bit watery. I couldn't do it if I didn't passionately believe it was the right thing to do. This is very personal for me, end quote. The media went wild, reporting about Hillary crying. The fact that she didn't shed a single tear but merely welled up didn't matter. The media was not about to follow the fact, the fact to, I'm sorry, the fact to get in the way of a good story. MSNBC, Fox News, and CNN all discussed Hillary's Edmund Muskie moment. Fox's conservative commentators, Michelle Malkin, oh God, I hate her, and Bill Kristol even suggested the cry was calculated to remind people, in Malkin's words, that she has a womb and that she's not the glacier that people think she is. The media echo, chamber play, media echo chamber played the video over and over and over and reached a general consensus that, calculated or not, 
Hillary's cry had finished her. After reviewing the media coverage, Comedy Central's John Stewart joked, that's it? That's the emotional breakdown that blows the election for her? I'm glad no one here ever sees me get a flu shot. While every political commentator assessed the impact of the image of Hillary's cry, no one focused on her words, which also played incessantly during the media frenzy. Some of us are right, and some of us are wrong. Some of us are ready, and some of us are not. Some of us know what we will do on day one, and some of us haven't really thought that through enough. And so when we look at the area of problems we, haven't, we have and the potential for it, getting really spinning out of control. This is one of the most important elections America has ever faced, end quote. Hillary had been making this point about Obama's inexperience for months with no effect. Now the echo chamber made sure that everyone heard Clinton stroke fears that Obama would not be ready for the job over and over again. In the days leading up to the New Hampshire vote, the echo chamber also repeatedly played another video, Iranian boats reportedly threatening U.S. naval forces in the Strait of Hormuz. That video, combined with reports of the plummeting stock market, added poignancy to Hillary's teary shot at Obama. Five days after Clinton lost to Obama among, among Iowa women by five percentage points, Clinton beat Obama among the New Hampshire women by 12 points. Catch you after the break. of Beyond Treason comes a new tale of deception and political spin. Not mining to the personal lives of millions of innocent Americans. What if legislation that was supposed to protect our freedoms actually took them away? Here's your Patriot Act! Here's your... What if you could be arrested for asking a question? What if the government could monitor your communications and break into your home. Well, they punch me in the face. Will you resist? Or will you freely surrender your liberties? Welcome to the new American dream. Did you know that a family of four earning 42000 pays nothing in federal income taxes but loses more than $6,000 to federal payroll taxes? 80% of wage earners lose more to payroll taxes than income taxes. Politicians should not ignore a tax that imposes such an oppressive burden, especially on the working poor and middle class. This is Eric Schonsberg, the Libertarian candidate for U.S. Congress and a professor of economics. I'm running against Baron Hill and Mike Sodrell, and I approve this message. Maybe knowing something about economics would be useful? Don't waste your vote this time. Vote Schonsberg on November 4th. HempUSA.org is now offering free shipping worldwide to better serve our customers. Our goal is to get these fine hemp products to you in the least amount of time so you can enjoy what the powder seeds and oil can do for you. HempUSA.org has a warning that the U.S. food supplies are dangerously low, and we urge you to protect your family with hemp storable foods today. Tomorrow may be too late. Call 908-691-2608 or visit HempUSA.org. This incredible food source is loaded with enzymes so your body can digest the food you eat. And it creates an alkaline environment where cancer can't grow and parasites cannot live and brings funguses, viruses, and bacterial levels down and to a halt. Try our powder seeds and oil today. Call 908-691-2608 or visit HempUSA.org. If the body has the proper nutrition, it will heal itself. Ask yourself, why does our government not allow this crop to grow in the U.S.? This product is also great for pets and animals. Call 908-691-2608 or go to HempUSA.org today. Hi, this is Senator Jefferson Smith. And they made a movie about me a long time ago called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, about a naive young man that knew everything about American history and 
unfortunately, very little about American politics. But you can do it for real, not in the fantasy of a movie, by sending a wiser, stronger, tougher Senator Smith back to Washington. His name is Ron Paul. I am a
I gotta tell you, I'm the President of the United States, there will be no preemptive wars with nuclear devices. To my mind, it's immoral, and it's been immoral for the last 50 years as part of American foreign policy. Carval called out Obama by refusing to rule out using nukes in Iran. Who the hell are you going to nuke? Tell me, Barack. Barack, who do you want to nuke? Obama smiled. I'm not planning to nuke anybody right now, Mike, I promise. Then uh, Carvel says, good. We're safe then for a while. Carvel went on to give viewers a history lesson on, on Iran. Quote, we've sanctioned them for 26 years. We're, we've scared the bejesus out of them when the president says they're evil. Well, you know something? These things don't work. They don't work. We need to recognize them. And you know something? Who is the greatest violator of the Non-Proliferation Treaty? The United States of America. We signed the pledge that we would begin to disarm, and we're not doing it. We're expanding our, we're expanding our nukes. Who the hell are we going to nuke? Gravel challenged all the mindless talk about Americans' enemies. Quote, we have no important enemies. What we need to do now is to begin to deal with the rest of the world as equals, and we don't do that. We spend more as a nation on defense than all the rest of the world put together. Who are we afraid of? Who are you afraid of, Brian? I'm not, and Iraq, and Iraq has never been a threat to us. We invaded them, end quote. And he even took on the military-industrial complex by saying it, quote, not only controls our government lock, stock, and barrel, but they control our culture. The reaction to Mike's performance in the first debate was huge. Contributions flooded the campaign's empty coffers. People were excited to hear someone break the group speak, break the group speak and defy the media storyline. But that kind of defiance was too much for the mainstream media. By the time the debate started, the media had already chosen their darlings and had begun shutting down the upstarts. After Gravel upset the apple cart in the first debate, CNN announced that it was excluding him from the next debate. Potted plant. When word got out, on the, got out that CNN had decided to exclude Gravel, his supporters used the power of the Internet to contact each other and flood CNN's offices with emails demanding his participation. CNN, CNN eventually caved, but did its best to marginalize Gravel during the debate by physically positioning him on the far left of the stage, outside of the TV camera's wide shot of the candidates. CNN also limited Gravel's questions in time that he was allowed to respond. The lower the candidates as they ranked in the national polls at the time of the CNN debate, along with the time that they were allowed to speak and the number of questions they were asked. Clinton, 14 minutes, 26 seconds, 15 questions. Obama, 16 minutes, 16 questions. Edwards, 11 minutes and 42 seconds, 13 questions. Richardson, 10 minutes and 48 seconds, 11 questions. Dodd, 8 minutes and 28 seconds, 9 questions. Biden, 7 minutes, 58 seconds, 10 questions. Kucinich, 9 minutes, 2 seconds, 9 questions. Gravel, 5 minutes, 37 seconds, 10 questions. Notice how the amount of time given to the candidates matched up perfectly with their poll rankings. Obama, who was second in polling, got about 90 seconds more than the frontrunner, um, Hillary Clinton. The other debates followed this pattern of weighting the speaking times heavily in favor of the frontrunners. Here again, the media chokes democracy. By limiting the ability of the so-called lower-tier candidates to communicate their positions and draw contrast with the media darlings, the debate hosts limit the discussion and reinforce the perception that there are only a few serious contenders. One might expect the Democratic Party to jump in and insist that all candidates receive equal time. DNC Chairman Howard Dean, a one-time lower-tier candidate, could have stood up against the inequitable allotment of airtime, but whatever commitment to grassroots democracy Dean had as a candidate disappeared when he took over the DNC. Dean and the DNC liked that the media was whittling down the field and featuring just a few candidates. They wanted the contest to be cited quickly with minimal debate that might harm their eventual nominee. Dean certainly wasn't going to buck the networks over a lower-tier troublemaker like Mike Gravel. Tavis Smiley. One exception to the rigged debate formats was a PBS debate hosted by Tavis Smiley at Howard University. Smiley asked each candidate the same question and allowed equal response time to everyone. Not only was PBS's debate the fairest, it was also provided the audience with the most wide-ranging discussion. It's no coincidence that the only fair debate was on public television and that the only fair debate catered to an African-American audience. No other group of people was, has a greater interest in challenging the consensus. Neither party has served the African-American community well over the recent decades. The Republicans will retain power, a powerful racist wing and the Democrats take the black votes for the granted. 
Smiley and the PBS debate organizers wanted to hear something different than the usual pendulum, and Gravel gave them something different. Quote, you have heard these nostrums before. You've heard it 10 years ago. You've heard it even 20 years ago. And why doesn't it change? The Democratic Party hasn't done has not done appreciably better than the Republican Party in solving these problems. It has to be solved by the people, not by your leaders. End quote. As Gravel spoke, applause erupted from the audience while the camera caught Al Sharpton nodding his head in agreement. Not everyone, however, appreciated Mike attacking his own party's failures. George Stephanopoulos, skunk at the party. After the Tavis Smiley debate, George Stephanopoulos whined, quote, in every single one of his answers, Mike Gravel was determined to be the skunk at the party and attack the other candidates, end quote. I'm going to point out for my audience, if I ever meet George Stephanopoulos, I'm probably going to punch him in the face. Just wanted to get that clear. Stephanopoulos was frustrated that Gravel wasn't playing nice with his fellow Democrats and was actually questioning their positions in the Democratic Party. Stephanopoulos joined the rest of the echo chamber in commending the other Democrats for being so civil and polite to each other and unified against the Bush administration. He did not like that Mike Gravel was pointing out that the Democrats were also guilty of violating the trust of the American people. Since the viewing audience for a typical primary debate is less than average sitcom, most debate analysis or analysts like Stephanopoulos hold a tremendous power over how the rest of the media reports the debate and how the public processes it. During the few times the debate commentators even mentioned Gravel's performances, it was always dismissively. The gay debate. It wasn't just the mainstream media that tried to exclude Gravel from the debates. In the summer of 2007, the Human Rights Campaign, a gay rights advocacy group, and Logo Television announced that they were inviting all the presidential candidates of both parties. Except Mike to the first ever Gay Issues Forum. Gravel had been the most outspoken defender of gay rights and was praised by the advocate for being unabashedly pro-gay marriage. The top candidates certainly didn't want him around to bash their opposition to marriage equally or quality and accuse them of keeping gays in second-class citizenship. Did the HRC bow to the star power of the top tier? Who knows? Officially, the HRC hid behind money, claiming that Gravel failed to meet the HRC's $100,000 fundraising threshold. The campaign countered by immediately contacting the gay press and websites, which quoted Mike's disgust. That this kind of censorship could come from the community that I am the greatest advocate of is not, it is not absurd, it's to the edge of stupidity. That they would get up, set up a criteria of not having enough money raised, all political scientists recognize that money is the corruption of the political system, end quote. Ravel continued, Quote, they, the HRC, are saying, I'm not greedy or corrupt enough to meet the standards set by Hillary and Obama and Edwards. You hear Edwards saying he can't get his arms around gay marriage. Is that the, perhaps, is that the garbage the HRC want to put before the people? End quote. All of the major gay publications rose to Mike's defense. Clarity wrote, Gravel may not be the leading Democratic candidate, but HRC has definitely shown their true colors. They're more interested in moderate, wealthy politicians than those willing to rock the boat, as Gravel has done. End quote. After being flooded with complaints about being threatened with a massive protest, HRC bowed to the public pressure and invited Mike to the debate. After reading Mike's open letter thanking the gay community, one supporter responded, quote, excellent thinking on the part of the debate I'm sorry, organizers. I really look forward to watching the debate. I probably would have skipped it otherwise since I'm so tired of the mainstream Democratic Party's doublespeak and hypocrisy when it comes to gay rights, end quote. On the night of the debate, Mike once again challenged the Democrats to embrace full equality for all Americans, included, including marriage equality for gays and lesbians. Although HRC backed down, it set a bad precedent by trying to establish a fundraising threshold to shut Gravel out of the debate. Our guys should talk. At the end of the NAACP presidential debate in July 2007, John Edwards walked up to the Hillary Clinton and whispered in the front of an open-air mic, at some time in the fall, we should try to have a more serious, smaller group. Hillary knew exactly what he meant. We've got to cut the number, she murmured. I think there was an effort by our campaigns to do that. It got somehow detoured. We've got to get back on it, end quote. Walking away, Clinton added, quote, our guys should talk. News of the overheard conversation raised little notice in the echo chamber. The media was unbothered that candidates were collaborating to short-circuit the democratic process and limit the national political debate because that's exactly what the media wanted. Gravel was spoiling the storyline. In the fall, just as Edwards and Clinton had discussed, the networks kicked Gravel out of the debates. But not before the, quote, man from Alaska got in one last shot. 
Hillary, I'm ashamed of you. In the summer of 2007, the Clinton campaign looked unstoppable. Rebell continued to criticize her during the debates and in his frequent blog screeds on the Huffington Post, including a popular one titled, Why Hillary Scares Me. But none of the other candidates dared to aggressively, aggressively challenge Hillary, the inevitable. Mike's last shot at Hillary came during a September NBC debate on the same day she joined a majority of her Senate colleagues to support a resolution labeling the Iranian Revolutionary Guard a terrorist organization. That afternoon, Gravel and his communications director discussed the vote and decided to bring, up, bring it up during that night's debate to draw attention to the fact that Hillary is a war hawk. There would be added drama to the confrontation because Clinton and Gravel were set to stand next to each other at the night, that night on the dais. The stage was set for a great video news clip to feed the media. During the debate, Gravel got to say, I'm sorry, got to say a grand total of 776 words. The next lowest total was Dennis Kucinich with 1,423 words. But Mike made every word count. The debate opened with each candidate promising to end the war in Iraq, but refusing to guarantee that U.S. troops would, would be out before the end of their first administration in 2013. Mike cut through all the nonsense and outlined, outlined how all the senators running for president could use their senatorial powers to force a withdrawal. Tim Russert was totally befuddled. Quote, Senator, are you suggesting that these candidates suspend their campaigns, go back to Washington, and up to 40 consecutive days vote on the war? Carvel was equally confused. If it stops the killing, my God, yes, do it. Shonsberg, the Libertarian candidate for Congress facing Baron Hill in November. A quick question for you. Are you happy with those gas prices? In May 2006, when gas prices were 2.87 a gallon, Barron repeatedly demanded a debate on gas prices with Mike Sodrell. In May 2008, with gas prices of $4 a gallon, Barron refused to debate me. He now says that action is more important than debate. But can we really afford any more of his action and inaction on this subject? I'm an economics professor, so let's start with supply and demand. The Democrats restrict the supply of domestic oil. This increases its price as well as our dependence on foreign oil. Instead, we should allow drilling off the Gulf Coast and in Anwar. About half of the gas price increase stems from a weaker dollar. Baron Hill devalues the dollar by voting for so much government spending and debt. Instead, we should strengthen the dollar through fiscal conservatism. We can do far better on gas prices. For more information, go to ericforcongress.com. Don't waste your vote this time. Vote Shonsberg for Congress in November. Paid for by Shonsberg for Congress. Are you tired of the old media? Then welcome to RTR Radio, an integrated radio broadcasting network that brings you truth of what's really going on around you. If you're concerned about where this country is headed, tune in to rtrradio.com. While other networks wait to see what's going to happen in America, we tell you what's happening in America. Get your daily dose of truth, liberty, and justice right here on rtrradio.com. I can't figure out how I'm going to vote for Congress this year. Which candidate? Actually, I'm not sure how to fill out the ballot. Whenever you talk about Congress, you need to keep one hand on your wallet. And I need the other hand to hold my nose when I choose between Sodrill and Hill. Well, that's easy to fix. Haven't you heard about Eric Schonsberg, the libertarian candidate? He's an economics professor who's written two books on public policy. He's the only fiscal conservative, and he wants to end the 15.3% federal tax on every dollar earned by the working poor. The libertarian? Wouldn't I be wasting my vote? The way I see it, you're wasting your vote if you choose Sodrill or Hill. We keep sending the same old candidates to Washington, and then we're surprised when we get the same results. I'm voting for real change. I'm voting Seansburg for Congress. This is Eric Seansburg, and I approve this message. For more information about the campaign, go to ericforcongress.com. We can make a difference. Don't waste your vote this time. Vote Seansburg for U.S. Congress on November 4th. Are you tired of getting more of the same when you cast your vote? FireCongress.org has a solution. 
follow the kick them all out plan and cast your ballot for any candidate except the incumbent. Politicians and diapers should be changed often. And same reason. This message is brought to you by the Kick Them All Out Project and Fire Congress campaign. More info can be found at Kick Them All.